You're listening to sermon audio from Grace Mosaic, a congregation of the Grace DC Network in Northeast DC. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org. One of the most distinguished and influential leaders of the ancient church was a man named Basil of Caesarea. He was born in modern-day Turkey, and Basel was one of the Cappadocian fathers, one of the staunch defenders of the Christian faith whose theological contributions actually helped to crystallize our understanding of God as Trinity. Basel's ministry legacy is remarkable. And one of the most significant aspects of that legacy was an institution that Basel founded called the Basiliad, a groundbreaking philanthropic institution unlike anything else that had come before it. The Basiliad, which came to be known as the New City, is widely recognized as the world's first hospital. It was a large building complex that was designed for the specific purpose of providing free care for the sick and the wounded and the poor. It was staffed by monks and nuns who lived out their monastic vision of life through a life of service, working with trained doctors and nurses and other lay people in order to bring healing to their neighbors. The Basiliad also included a care home for the elderly and hospice for lepers. The Basiliad was the Eastern Church's ministry of holistic healing, and it became a profound witness across the Eastern Roman Empire beginning in the 4th century. Basel was a remarkable man of God. This is one of the things that was on his list of ministry activities and accomplishments. And at his funeral, his dearest friend in the whole wide world, Gregory of Nazianzus, the second of the Cappadocian fathers, delivered a powerful eulogy to remind his audience of Basel's witness. This is what he said, and I quote, Basel took the lead in pressing upon those who were men that they ought not to despise their fellow men. Others cared about their cooks and splendid tables and the devices and dainties of confectioners and exquisite carriages and soft flowing robes. Basel's care was for the sick and the relief of their wounds and the imitation of Christ by cleansing leprosy, not by a word, but in deed. Countless people across the Eastern Roman Empire came to know Jesus as a healer because they first came to know the church as a place of healing. Our world is filled with wounded people. Northeast D.C. is filled with wounded people. Our neighbors bear relational wounds due to broken home environments, childhood neglect, and violence. Our neighbors bear emotional wounds due to the loss of loved ones, divorce, and financial hardship. Our neighbors bear social wounds 
due to incarceration, displacement, and injustices that have been done against their communities. Still others bear spiritual wounds due to their alienation from God. But as we listen to the voices of our neighbors, one thing is pretty clear. Our neighbors do not see the church as a place of healing. In fact, in recent years, many have shared accounts of various ways that they've actually been wounded by the community that's supposed to be a place of healing. And this is why it's crucial that every Christian and, yes, every one of our neighbors understand that God's vision for the church, a vision that came to life in the ministry of Basel and the apostles before him, God's vision for his church is that we would be a place of holistic healing for the world, a community of healers. The Lord has called his community to attend to the wounded, regardless of the nature of those wounds, regardless of if those wounds are their own fault or the result of being sinned against. And if the church once again embraces the critical component of God's mission, that is a ministry of healing, then through our witness, our neighbors may come to know Jesus as a healer by first coming to know Grace Mosaic as a place of healing. Our text for today shows us that a church that is faithfully participating in the mission of God will be a place of healing. It's a very simple and clear point that I believe emerges from this passage. And you have to understand, the book of Acts is a historical book. And not everything that we see in the book is prescriptive. But there are theological lessons and authorial intent, which is to say we have to pay attention to what the author, Luke, is trying to get across to the Christian community, not only in his time, but over the ages. And I believe he delivers to us a strong message about the work of the church. And so we're going to briefly work through this theme from Acts chapter 3 by looking at four key ideas. Our presence, our perception, our provision, and our potential. We're going to look at our presence, our perception, our provision, and our potential. So let's look at our first point as we consider our presence. One thing that we need to keep in mind throughout the book of Acts, if you haven't been with us, we're working through a series in the book of Acts which is the story of the explosive growth of the church after the resurrection of Christ. After their eyewitness experience of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, something explosive happens. God's power is poured out on his people. His spirit is poured out. And there's this dynamic that's at work in the relationship between Luke's gospel and the book of Acts, which were really one work, they were so big they couldn't fit on one scroll, so it's broken up into two, okay? And we have to remember that the gospel of Luke was the account of all that Jesus began to do and teach. Then Luke tells us in the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, that the book of Acts is going to be an account of all that Jesus continues to do through the work of his church. It's the continuing ministry of Jesus through his church. 
And this is to be an identity-forming reality in the church. And it anchors us to Jesus in the work that we take up. We don't create the rules. We don't set the agenda. Jesus is the paradigm for ministry. That's what Luke gives us. Who are we? The community through whom Jesus is continuing his work and his teaching. And last week we saw that the early Christian church devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, the fellowship with other believers, the breaking of bread, hospitality, and prayer. And this is what permeated the community of believers, and they took all of this out into the world with them, and it formed their sensibilities as it related to their relationship with their neighbors. And in this text, we see the church continuing the healing ministry of Jesus. Now, let me give you a brief word about healing. One of the first ways that Yahweh, the Lord, kind of explains himself to his people right after he rescues them from slavery in Egypt, is by describing himself as the Lord, your healer. Right at the beginning of the story, he says, I am the Lord, your healer. That's how I want you to see me. I'm a healer, holistically so. And through the rest of the Old Testament, the theme of healing is one of the most striking and profound metaphors to describe God's salvation. And what happens through the rest of the scriptures is that we see healing is framed up in the Old Testament in a way similar to the concept of shalom. The Hebrew concept of shalom was not just the kind of peace that you say you need when the kids are driving you crazy. I just need some peace. It's not just the cessation of crazy. It's the presence of wholeness, flourishing, and healing in every sphere of life for every person. The whole person and the whole community. That was the vision of healing. But what we see through the development of the story is a sick people that does not oftentimes lay hold of the healing that God has offered. And they are called by the prophets sick from head to toe. But what we get is a promise in the prophets as well of a servant of the Lord by whose stripes they would be healed. And when we get to the Gospels, there's an explosion. When the Son of God shows up in human flesh, bearing the burdens of his people, but even more than that, doing the work of healing. Now, what you have to understand is that in the Gospels, the healings of Jesus that he executed on behalf of other people, these healings were not parlor tricks. It wasn't just fireworks to get people's attention. The, the miraculous healings of Jesus, the healing ministry of Jesus, was a sign of the inbreaking of the kingdom of God. When you saw healing, you were meant to understand that the kingdom of God has shown up and that the king is flexing his power and authority over the rebel forces of the curse. And he's restoring things to their original wholeness and flourishing to their original health when Jesus performed healings 
It was a sign of the presence of the kingdom of God. And that will always and ever be the sign that healing is supposed to communicate to our neighbors and to our fellow community members. Whenever we see God's healing at work in the lives of people, there we are seeing the inbreaking of the kingdom, the inbreaking of the power of God. We see this, for example, in John chapter 4, where there is a woman who is wounded. She carries, she carries social wounds and relational wounds because of many broken love relationships. She's been looking for love in all the wrong places. Jesus draws near to her, and he, he begins to engage her. And soon, she is a recipient of his healing. But then she runs back to her community, and she says, Come see a man who's told me everything I know, everything that I've ever done. And then the whole community of the Samaritans who were, by the way, a wounded community that had been alienated from their historic countrymen. Now they all come back. And you know what the end of the passage says? And there was much rejoicing in that place because the salvation of God showed up in Samaria. Of all places, you see the healing ministry of Jesus touches individuals, then it touches communities, but it was a sign of the arrival of the kingdom of God. And now the church is to continue this ministry. Let's look at how this develops. Presence, our presence. Look at verse 1. We're told that John, Peter and John were going up to the temple to pray. Now I want you to notice, it's easy to breeze past that. But there's something significant here. And it's this. The apostles were still very much involved in their cultural institutions as Jewish people. They are not withdrawn from their people. They are present in their community. Now listen, when I came to faith my sophomore year of college through a radical conversion, I was under the impression that in order to be a faithful Christian, I had to get away from all of those old friends that I did all my dirt with. I had to separate from them so that I could be more and more devoted to the church, more involved in the church. And it didn't occur to me till years later that I had missed a tremendous opportunity to bear witness to those friends concerning the power of Christ to heal wounded people. This is how missiologist Leslie Newbigin puts it, and I quote, the church is the bearer to all the nations of a gospel that announces the kingdom, the reign, and the sovereignty of God. It calls men and women to repent of their false loyalty to other powers, to become believers in the one true sovereignty, and so to become corporately a sign, instrument, and foretaste of that sovereignty of the one true and living God over all nature, all nations, and all human lives. Listen, listen, here it is. It is not meant to call men and women out of the world and to save religious enclaves, but to call them out in order to send them back as agents of God's kingship. And that is why throughout the book of Acts, we see a constant gathering and then scattering and then gathering and then scattering. 
Because this is the way the kingdom is supposed to work. When you have an encounter with Jesus raised from the dead, Jesus is Lord. He works in your life so that you can go back out to be a herald, to be a witness for others who are suffering under the same kinds of wounds and afflictions that you have experienced. If we would minister healing to our neighbors, then we have to be present. But what's the logic? Why? Is it just simply for pragmatic reasons because, you, you know, it's hard to really connect with people from a distance? No, it's not for pragmatic reasons. It's not simply because it works. You know the reason why we must be present is because we're supposed to be continuing the ministry of a present Savior. This should form us. Jesus didn't commute from heaven to earth every day. He didn't stay in heaven's gated community. He dwelt among us. The king moved into the ghetto, into the trailer park, into the barrio, to the slums where the wounded could be found in high density. If you want to find Jesus, look for the wounded because that's where he would be. And that is where we get the logic of mission. We have to always remember, mission is not us going out for Jesus, and Jesus is back here watching from afar saying, that's it, good job. No, mission is about going out to where Jesus already is at work and joining him in that work as participants. Jesus was found present with the wounded. He came near to those whom he longed to heal, and so must we if we would be faithful and effective. Think about our presence. But we should also think about our perception, which brings us to our next point. Verses 2 and 3 set us up for the encounter. And we have to remember that it's not just in this age, but, but also in the first century. Questions were always circulating when it came to social arrangements. Who is included in this community? Who is welcome? And surprising results are revealed in Luke's description of the Christian community. In verses 4 through 6, we get the development. And verse 4 begins with this. It says, and Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John. So I want you to imagine it. They're outside the entrance to the temple. There is a beautiful golden door and a beautiful brass door. It's called the beautiful gate, right? Because of the beauty of of the architecture. And then there is an absolutely broken, ruined man who is carried by family members or friends that come so he could beg for alms. And the man is crying out to people. He's asking for help. And finally, when Peter and John come by, he's been ignored enough. Some people have looked at him as an act of piety. This was a part of Jewish piety. But surely not everyone noticed. And when he sees Peter and John coming by, he asks them for help. And then the text tells us that Peter looked at him intently. And so did John. This text is striking. It's striking because in the ancient world, 
the disabled, particularly the lame, were objects of ridicule and derision. They were despised social outsiders and outcasts doomed to live forever on the fringes of society. And in our day, the wounded are more often just not on our radar. I have learned a lot from my friends who live on the street. And I've heard it from many of them, most recently from my main man, Maurice, who I affectionately call Big Mo. Big Mo were, and I were sitting out in front of the 7-Eleventh on 12th Street on that park bench there, just catching up and talking. And I asked him, I said, Big Mo, I, I, I got to ask you something. He said, what's up, Reverend Russ? He called me Reverend Russ. Reverend Russ. And how he greets me is just the best. Reverend Russ. He see me blocks away. He's like, Reverend Russ, Reverend Russ. Like he's shouting me out for the whole neighborhood. I love this brother so much. And I asked him, what is the hardest thing about the situation that you and many others in our city are facing? He said, well, Reverend Russ, I can deal with being hungry every once in a while. And you know what? I don't have a need for fancy clothes. But what really hurts me is when people ignore me, when they act as if I'm not here, when they don't even pay attention, when I address them. Christians are supposed to perceive their neighbors and all of reality in a very different way. According to God's design, there are to be no invisible people for God's church. Look at Peter and John. They don't ignore the man. They don't spiritualize the situation and give him a gospel tract while ignoring his physical condition. What we have here is a pregnant moment of personal encounter in which Peter and John not only see this man, but they recognize his dignity. They care, and then they bring their resources to bear on his need. To put it succinctly, the healing of Christ meets the man's brokenness through their care. The light of heaven enters into his darkness through their care. The glory of God enters into his disgrace through their care. The text is prodding you and I what God might do if I were to care. What might God do with you if you were to simply care? How might God work through you for their benefit if you simply care? We all care. Care is just a foundational aspect of being human. But what we often find is that the budget of our care is more spent on ourselves than on our neighbors at times. And so that's why it takes a constant rhythm of repentance and faith and confession and returning to the Lord because the pool of our hearts and the pool of our culture is trying to form us to be selfish individualists. Hey, I feel bad for him, but hey, I got to do what I got to do for me. That is not the spirit of the Christian faith. And it wasn't the spirit of the early church. And sometimes I feel like the difference between the fruit we see in Acts and the fruit that we don't see in American Christianity is really grounded in the fact that they cared and we struggle to care, to spend the budget of our care 
for our neighbors. I want you to think about something. In a culture filled with the plague of apathy and selfishness, one of the most transformative missional virtues of the church is simple, sincere, committed care. But where did this come from? Where did Peter and John get these sensibilities? Why did they care for this man? Because they had been in the school of Christ. They saw how Jesus cared for the world. They walked with Jesus and saw how he cared for these very types of people. The lame, the sick, the diseased, the broken, the hopeless, the lost, the type that couldn't pay him back, the type that lived on the fringes of society. This was a constant theme in Jesus' dealings with people. Their master was all about this very thing. But it was even deeper than this, y'all. Not only did they have the example of Christ's care, they had the experience of Christ's care. They knew that Jesus cared for them. In every aspect of his, his ministry, his person and work, they could see the tremendous care of Jesus for them, of the triune God for them. His incarnation said that he cared to be with them. His teaching said that he cared to correct and instruct them. His sufferings said that he cared to defend them. His trials said that he cared to acquit them. His crucifixion said that he cared to redeem them. His resurrection said that he cared to raise them. His commission said that he cared to use them. His ascension said that he cared to represent them. His session at the right hand of the Father said that he cared to intercede and pray for them. Pentecost said that he cared to fill them with his power and joy. His promised return said that he cared enough to make the whole world new again. Everything about the person and work of Jesus Christ is calling out to us that he cares. And your life will never become what it was meant to be. And our community will never become what it was meant to be until we are convinced that Jesus cares for us. And the more deeply you sense his care for you, the more you begin to care about the people around you. You see, bare Altruism has its limits as a paradigm for relating to your neighbors and people who aren't like you and people who frustrate you and people who make you crazy. But you know what has no limits? Cruciform love. The redeeming love of God in Jesus Christ has no limits. If he would go to the uttermost to save the guttermost, there is no boundary on what he calls you to do. There's no one that you could safely put out of the boundaries of deserving your care and your attention and your respect for their dignity as image bearers. I don't care how crazy the things they say are. I don't care how much damage they have done in the world, how evil they are. You do not adorn the Christian faith by reviling them. 
We need that in these times, don't we? We are pulled hard to pick a side. But the way of Jesus transcends the options that have been given to us. It transcends. It won't let us get off the hook with not caring about the impact on brothers and sisters of color when evil injustices are done in the world and violence continues to be done against people of color. It won't let you get off the hook. But it also will not let you off the hook for inviting all people on all sides to repentance. I want you to hear me. Cross-cultural competence does not let people of color off the hook when they are outside the boundaries. Morally, ethically, Christianly. That's the soft bigotry of low expectations for brothers and sisters of color. Like, like you can't offer a word of challenge when a brother or sister of color says something that's way out here with respect to the kingdom of God. This is inside the household of faith. But we also don't do any favors by always sitting in the safe middle, trying to make sure we don't make anyone mad, trying to make sure we don't get accused of being a social justice warrior or a Marxist or whatever the, the, the favorite uh, slur is of the day, their CRT, their this, that, and the other thing. We don't need to be afraid about what other people say about us. We must focus on following the way of Jesus. And what we see in the way of Jesus and in continuing the ministry of Jesus is that we are called to be healers and a community for the wounded. If our community is not a place for the wounded, it is sub-Christian. No matter what kind of wounds they may be, no matter what the origin of those wounds might be. They are to find a refuge here. You know, one of the earliest images for the church was the ark. Noah's ark. That was one of the early images in the favorites among the ancient church fathers and mothers. Is the church is an ark, a refuge from the storm. Oh, that God would make us a refuge from the social storms of our day. The more you sense God's care for you, the more you begin to care about the people around you. When you receive this love of Jesus, you can't contain it. You can't. It just overflows you. It overflows you to hit your neighbors in beautiful ways. But let's look at our provision, our third point. I'm getting this from verse 6 if you take a look. <coughs> verse 6 says, but Peter said... This is Peter's response to the man. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. Now, I just love the way this verse challenges us. When the man asks Peter for alms, Peter says, listen, I don't have any silver or gold. And he could have left it right there. I continued on his way into the temple to pray. And I think that this text stings us real good because when people in need ask us for help, we often begin and end with what we don't have and what we're unable to do. But look at what Peter does. It's simple but powerful. Peter doesn't just tell the man what he doesn't have to give. Instead, he goes on to tell him what he does have to give 
and then he gives it. The person deeply formed by Christ will not stop with what they don't have, but will go on to generously share what they do have. We must consider our provisions. What has God given you to give to the world? That is one of the most important questions that you can ask and answer in prayer, in communion with God, and in communion with your people, your community, your community group. What is it that God has given you to give to the world? You may not have exactly what a person wants or needs in the moment, but you most certainly have something to share. You may not have silver and gold to give, but you have Jesus to give. You have a community to offer. You have presence, time, and care to offer. You have networks to offer. You have hope to give, encouragement to give, love to give. I think that if the early church had a motto, it very well could have been, what we do have, we give to you. They had the faith to provide for others because they were confident that God had the grace to provide for them. And I want to take a moment to encourage you, Grace Mosaic. Not all sermons have to jack you up, all right? I see this beautiful spirit of generosity at work in you. Truly, it's one of the sweetest evidences of grace that I see at work in our little family of faith. As your pastor, I want you to hear me loudly and clearly and joyfully cheering you on and celebrating the beautiful ways that you give of yourselves, your money, your time, your hearts, your prayers. I love it that we have what I would consider a thick community here at Grace Mosaic. And I want you to know just how much the Father delights in every act of generosity, every sacrifice that you make for others, every move you make, big or small, to dress the wounds of others with what you have to offer. I want you to imagine the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit gathering the great cloud of witnesses to celebrate every little inkling that you have to move toward others in love, the, the, the raucous celebration of heaven every time you give in his name and serve in his name and pray in his name and go out in his name to bring glory to his name. He is proud. He is not ashamed to call you sons and daughters. And I hope that that encourages you. I see you, but even more importantly, God sees you. And I want to cheer you on to not grow weary in your well-doing. Let's look at our final point, our potential. I see our potential. If we, if we continue, if we continue the, the works and the teachings of Jesus, if we continue his ministry as a church, I think I see the potential in verse 10. Take a look. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. This is the response of the observers. I just 
It's so good because remember, the author, Dr. Luke, was a physician. And do you notice how many times in the back part of our passage, he repeats and emphasizes that the man was leaping and walking and praising God? He was leaping. He says it a number of times. He's trying to get it through to you. A bona fide miracle happened in this man's life. And his praise could not be contained. He was vocal about the impact that the healing ministry of the church had on his life. And then we see the response of the observers. When they see the impact of the church's healing ministry on this broken man. Now, to be fair, <coughs> excuse me, this was a miracle. This was a miracle. But I also think that this shows us our missionary potential. When the best testimony to the love and faithfulness of Grace Mosaic comes from the lives of those whom we have touched rather than from our media and marketing, the potential for kingdom harvest grows exponentially. I'm going to say that again because I want you to hear this. When the best testimony to the love and faithfulness of Grace Mosaic comes from those whose lives we have touched rather than from our media and our marketing, then the potential for our kingdom harvest is tremendous. This has been true throughout church history. When our neighbors become the evidence of our genuine faith in Christ, then we are really walking in the way of Christ and continuing his ministry. I think that's a powerful metric for us to think about as it relates to our communal health. For consideration, I'm going to close by saying this. There are many ways to be wounded, but there's only one way to be healed. And that is through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Faith in the same Jesus who conquered the grave. And if he conquered the grave, he can heal any wound. And our healing ministry can provide a runway for the faith of our neighbors to get into the air. A true healing ministry will find a way to take people right where they are in whatever situation or condition they may be and will help them in any way possible in Jesus' name and for his glory. The whole gospel is a message of healing for the whole person and the whole world. No people group excluded. Nobody too far gone. Nobody so knocked out. Some of our wounds may not be healed until glory. But the scars of our Savior are proof that earth has no wounds that the God of heaven cannot heal. That's why Jesus resurrected says, look at my scars. Healing is on the way for my beloved. Will you receive my love by faith alone in what I have done? Will you get off of the treadmill of spiritual performance thinking that you can impress God or put God in your debt or do enough to maybe balance the scales of your life. Maybe your good deeds can outweigh your bad deeds. That is a losing battle. 
But guess what? That's not a battle that you have to win. Jesus has already won the greatest battle. And all you have to do is trust in his victory to be swept up into it. That's good news. Let's make it our prayer that our neighbors may come to know Jesus as their healer because they first came to know Grace Mosaic as a place of healing. Amen? Let's pray. Thanks for listening to this podcast from Grace Mosaic. For more information about our church, visit us online at gracemosaic.org.